So I feel like there, you know, these four virtues, love, peace, by the way, peace has a lot to do with justice, and I've thought about justice quite a bit, um, joy, which is kind of fun um, topic, and then there was hope, and I, I'm doing one of these, and I kind of feel like Pete purposely gave me the, the least exciting and most challenging one um, to do, and I think it's challenging, hope is, to talk about because of just the contemporary place in which we find ourselves. Now, I don't mean that to be like a depressing, oh, because uh, we're not necessarily united or the world, you know, is, is, is fighting, is there hope for this or that. I, I just, I mean it at a very basic level that where we find ourselves today is such a fast-paced and quickly changing reality that it's, it's, that hope is not something that we find space or time to think about. Like my hope is in Christ, but if I'm frantic during the day, am I, am I really reflecting on that and trying to, to discern what that means in my day-to-day life? If, if everything's changing so fast, um, what's even my hope for tomorrow? If careers are coming and going, if, if economics are going up and down, what, what am I really, what does hope really mean? And I think what we find is that when we don't have the space to reflect on hope, um, we just have panic. Um, so instead of the space to, to grapple with ultimate reality, ultimate questions, who am I and where am I going, we are reacting and responding to the circumstances around us, and we're doing it at a pretty frenetic pace, and, and we're exhausted. I've, uh, this is a topic I've been thinking a lot about as well, uh, and it's why I picked up kind of a new book recently, Thomas Friedman's new book. Thomas Friedman is a New York Times um, columnist. He's written a lot of books on globalization, fascinating writer. Um, but in this particular book, he's really taken a stab at all that has changed since he wrote a book years ago on globalization. And, and this remarkable fact uh, that the rate of change in society has skyrocketed um, beyond what our ability to adapt to it is. So that's the big, kind of in think tanks right now, the big question that people are wrestling with. So if we were to draw it, it would look something like this. So rate of change and then over time. And what we see is it's going like this. And humans are adaptable. We can, we can handle change to a certain degree. And so we have an ability to kind of um, take in change, adapt to it, modify, grow, whatever it might be. And the interesting thing about that is that you can actually draw that as a growing line, that our ability to adapt through practice, through habit, through just growing up with lots of change is actually something growing. That, that we as, as humans in, in this century are probably better able to handle change than people 100 years ago or 200 years ago that didn't have as much um, experience with it, that hadn't patterned themselves to it. Despite the fact that we have a, a growing capacity um, as a race of people to handle change, 
the, the position we exist in today is here. Let me draw that bigger. I don't know if that even shows. So where we are has, has surpassed our ability to deal with it. We are in a rate of change in society or globally that is beyond what we have a category or an understanding or just human capacity with which to, um, to engage. And this is really fascinating. And uh, Pete and I are going to be meeting with a group of pastors in a couple months in Portland to kind of talk about this because it, it has implications for, well, really everything. It has implications for church and mission has implications for my parenting, has implications for me uh, as a, a 44-year-old man. What does, that, what does that look like when society is changing far quicker than I'm able to absorb or handle it? Um, they, they really say that the pivot here happened in 2007. Really interesting stuff, but in 2007, where the inflection just kind of went, went vertical. Um, not because of any kind of recession or any kind of economic collapse or any of the housing market stuff we talk about, but because in 2007 the iPhone came out, which was the advent of, of apps, uh, which is what led to, same year, um, uh, cell towers putting out data. Twitter was spun off as its own thing in 2007. Uh, the ability to store information um, took a leap in 2007, which allowed for algorithms and programs to look for needles in a haystack of data that otherwise wouldn't have been there. Um, YouTube was bought by Google, 2007. The, the list kind of keeps going. Uh, the Android was, was thought up in 2007 as a response to uh, what was going to happen with the iPhone. Airbnb was dreamed up in 2007. Basically, 2007 saw this, this explosion in what the rate of technology or digital, uh, the digital age was going to do to our life, how we experience it, what we do. Um, I saw a lot of change in 2007. I went on a couple early trips to, to Africa and then a few years later to Cambodia. And, and it was, the, the change I saw was, was globalization 1.0. Um, I would buy things at, at kind of the, the the markets, the bazaars, and I came back from Africa two trips in a row, and I had purses and wallets for Tamara and the girls, um, you know, handcrafted kind of little ones, what I thought were handcrafted little ones. And so I had these things, and Tamara on the second trip says, you know, you're really too predictable. You always get the same thing, and I really am. Um, and uh, when we got married, I don't know if you guys ever been to the Juice Stop, it's like Jamba Juice, but Juice Stop is in California, Southern California. And they have a hundred different kinds of juices. And it was right next to the LA Fitness where I used to work out when I was in grad school. And, and so every day I would, I would walk out, I'd get a juice, I'd get a number one, which is banana, strawberry, and orange juice, right? And so when Tam and I started dating, probably one of the first weeks, we go to Juice Stop, I order a number one, she's waiting to order, they're looking at her. And, and she's seeing all hundred of these on the walls where they have them. And she looks at me and she says, what else is good? And I said, I don't know. I've never tried anything else. <laughs> and she, she almost broke up with me right then. Um, Tamara's personality is she has to try all hundred before she ever can go back to just one, you know. 
in return to something. At a, at a potluck, she'll eat all the food instead of picking a theme, you know? Um, pizza, Chinese food, fried chicken, salad, potato salad. Like, they don't all go together in your stomach, you know? You have to, you have to navigate it. But I'm pretty predictable. So it was interesting with these presents, kind of like I'm getting the same kind of thing. I went to Cambodia, came back, and I didn't realize this, but Tamara looked at me and she says, do you know that you brought back the exact same purse that you got in, in, in Africa? And it was, I was just blown. No, I got this in Cambodia. Well, it turns out that both of them were made in China. <laughs> and that if you go to Germany and you find a quaint little village that sells Christmas things, um, you're going to be shocked when you come back and, and go downtown to a Christmas store and realize they're selling the exact same things, and, and neither of them were made in Germany. Like, it's, it kind of blows your mind. I went to an internally displaced persons camp uh, back in, in 2008, and they had, they had no real source of water. Everything was brown because it's dirt, it's, it's wood for houses, mud for houses, grass for roofs, um, maybe some dirty bikes. Uh, people that only have one set of clothes or two sets of clothes. And this is this kind of internally displaced refugee camp. And yet they had a, a little wooden shack that had marketing things all over it, and it was selling what they call air. Um, you, can't, you can't get a phone service that bills you at the end of the month. You know, uh, phone companies don't extend credit to people who make a dollar a day, right? Or don't have a physical mailing address. And so you pre-buy your air, your minutes, and you, you punch in a little code and you get 100 minutes, 1,000 minutes, whatever it is. But so in the middle of this refugee camp, they had minutes for cell phones, even though Africa never really did the hard line with phones. They just leapfrogged it, went right to cell phones. Like, it's, it's mind-blowing. They do stuff in Africa now that's way beyond what we do in the States where peer-to-peer -peer apps where you can transfer money and, and just kind of move money via your phone. And... And we're still kind of catching up to some of that. But I saw that level it, it, a lot of change, if you will. But what's happening now is just on a whole different order. And it's happening globally. Um, if, if I were to read kind of the example that they give here with the, the rate of change based on the, the microchip um, processing chips, that if you take the first generation chip from Intel in 1971, and compare it to a, a 1971 Volkswagen Beetle, the, the change for the Beetle would have to look like this. The Beetle would be able to go about 300,000 miles per hour. It would get 2 million miles per gallon of gas, and it would cost 4 cents. <clears throat> That's because the, the Intel processors now are 3,500 times greater in performance, 90,000 times more energy efficient, and 60,000 times lower in cost. Um, what that does to our life is, is just really remarkable. They say that the, the patent, the whole idea of patents is, is just kind of gone obsolete because a patent takes something like four years to get, maybe five years. And the idea is if you have a light bulb like Edison or, or think of the intermittent um, windshield wiper, right? It's a mechanical thing, innovation that's gonna be used for generations. And so you go through this process of, of protecting it so that you can get royalties on this mechanical thing that has now evolved into kind of a new way of doing things. 
Um, most of the things coming to the patent office these days, if they even bother, which they're beginning to less and less, are technological advances or software advances. And they're digital, not mechanical. And within four years, before you ever even get the, uh, the patent, it's, it's, it's completely obsolete. I mean, think back four years ago um, to some of those kinds of things. It's either obsolete or being built upon or replaced by so many things that it's not even worth the time or the energy to go get a patent for it. Things are changing really fast. So I have two kind of thoughts that I, I came up with with regard to hope and with regard to what does it mean to navigate this reality with a high rate of, cha a high rate of change in society across time. And they both came by calling Gary Bashirs because that's who I call when I don't know what to do for a sermon. Um, Gary Bashirs has is, is been a theology professor at Western for 30 plus years, uh, coming up on 40. And we kind of talked about this whole subject and ended up in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 1. So if you want to turn there, we'll look at Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy chapter 1 is kind of the, the re-giving, that's kind of where the name Deuteronomy comes from, the re-giving of the law, the retelling of the law, kind of Moses is boiling it down and kind of reissuing it in some sense. And we're going to get two stories here beginning in verse 9 and then kind of continuing through, two stories that happened from the Israelite time in uh, the desert. Uh, and what you have, if you remember going into Egypt was basically one big extended family. It was the 12 kind of um, the brothers of Joseph. Uh, you have these brothers come down in the famine. They end up moving their whole family down there. And then over time, this, this extended family, if you will, grows and, and prospers and becomes enough to be a, a, a nation when they move out into the desert and ultimately the promised land. And so as they come out of Egypt, think of people that have been in bondage or slavery for a couple hundred years. They don't have their own law. They don't have their own uh, systems per se. They've, they've been steeped in a way of living in Egypt that's very different in landscape, very different in resources than what the desert is going to provide. In fact, the desert doesn't even provide enough to sustain them. God has to begin giving them manna from heaven. So like a dew on the ground, this bread that, that is actually edible only lasts a day, but that God faithfully provides this manna, which is where we get our phrase, our daily bread, that somehow in an environment that is so challenging and so different that you can't even live or survive, that somehow God is going to provide enough for you to get through that day and the next day and the next. And in this, we see Moses, who's the leader who's now brought these people out, trying to grapple with the overwhelming task of how do you organize these people and actually form some semblance of society out of it. And he says, this is kind of Moses is telling of it, verse 9, at that time when we came out of Egypt, I said you are too heavy a burden for me to carry alone. The Lord your God has increased your numbers so that today you are as numerous as the stars in the sky. And may the Lord, the God of your ancestors, increase you a thousand times and bless you as he has promised. But how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose some wise, understanding, and respected men from each of your tribes, and I will set them over you. You answered me. What you propose sound, uh, to do sounds good. So I took the leading men of your tribes, wise and respected, and appointed them to have authority over you as commanders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, as tribal officials. In other words, within the 12 tribes. 
And I charged your judges at the time, hear the disputes between your people and judge fairly whether the case is between two Israelites or between an Israelite and a foreigner residing among you. Do not show partiality in judging. Hear both small and great alike. Do not be afraid of anyone, for judgment belongs to God. So he, he kind of organized these people. The interesting telling of this story is that he leaves out um, the fact that it was his father-in-law that gave him the advice. Right? So in the retelling of the story, uh, Moses is now taking full credit for the advice that his father-in-law gave him when he traveled into the desert to kind of find them, of saying, this is too much for you, Moses. You've got to organize it. Why don't you do this? So Moses did it. By the time he's well in years, he just takes the credit for it. There's probably a, an in-law story there somewhere. My in-laws are here, so I, I don't have the, the liberty to try to figure it out. It's a good in-law story. Um, but, but I wouldn't want to trip into something um, in Lodge. Um, so what do, what do I get from this? I get this, that spirituality is also intensely practical. Or practical matters are spiritual. Um, Jesus didn't start with 12 disciples. He slowly grabbed them and, and lifted them up. And eventually they became the ones that fed the people when he did the miracles. They became the ones that procured the boat, that kept crowds away from him, that went and found a donkey uh, and, and got things ready for the Lord's Supper, that kind of stuff. The, this group of guys took the weight of ministry upon, him, uh, upon them as crowds of thousands of people began to push in and crowd around Jesus. And so there's something really interesting about the practical nature of spirituality. Um, it's in Scripture here that somehow Moses had to learn how to adapt to his new circumstances and to do it well with wisdom, skill, and maturity so that all of them could function the best they possibly could. And these people that were brought out in the desert, it says in Scripture, were a nation of priests meant to declare the praises of God. So a very practical thing in the life of this, this nation uh, was for, for Moses to get himself organized so that they could fulfill their mission of bringing praise to God. Um, the interesting thing about the rate of change in society today is that a lot of what needs to happen is intensely practical. That, that we feel overwhelmed, that I feel overwhelmed, that what I learned about money might be obsolete or that I didn't learn enough about it or that I somehow have to, to get the advice of housing markets or job markets or people outside of my area of expertise to say, how do I raise into my kids or disciple into my kids so that they have the resiliency or skill with which to navigate a very new society that's going to be around in four years or five years. One of the interesting things that's come from this is we've always had, and you can go all the way back to the beginning of time, we've always had differences between older generations and younger generations. Um, younger generations were supposed to... Um, to respect the skill, the maturity, the knowledge of older generations, the elders in the community, if you will. And, and for the most part, society kind of pushed it that way because over time, they built that skill and maturity, and that skill and maturity was relevant or felt relevant to the experience of the young people. Um, what happens when things change so fast that the experience or the worldview into which young people are born is so radically different than what happened maybe 
uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, that when young people feel like I'm supposed to respect my elders because I'm supposed to, but they begin to question whether there's knowledge or skill that these people have that's relevant to Instagram. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, but there's a tension there. And it's, it's, we feel it in society that young people should be learning from the, the wisdom and experience of older people, but that young people today don't often um, grab hold of that or live into it. It's, a, it's an incredibly interesting or challenging uh, reality. Or older people looking at the young people and saying what old people I think have always said, I just don't get it, right? Um, there's just a real change that's happening when you've, got, when you've got such a rapid escalation. The other thing that comes from this uh, is the argument that we, we've never really prepared people for lifelong learning. Um, certainly in the modern educational system, people came with the idea that if they go to school through uh, high school, uh, possibly through college, possibly through, through graduate school or, or getting a doctorate, that they've, they've developed a body of knowledge that will then serve them for life. I've paid my dues so that I could have knowledge, so that I could operate at a very high level within society and certainly within my field of study, and now I don't need to do that anymore. I'm so glad it's done, right? And what, what's happening today with society changing so fast is that we have to switch our whole understanding of education and begin to equip and prepare people for lifelong learning. That what you learned in elementary school, what you learned in high school, what you learned in college, a lot of it might be obsolete a couple years from now, a couple years after that. And the things that you need to operate with wisdom and skill in society are things that you need to learn in the moment, today or tomorrow, or prepare yourself to have a listening ear so that as you're out and about in society, you can pick up the little nuggets that actually make a difference in helping you adapt to the new circumstances. So the practical is intensely spiritual or there's spirituality in the practical. That lifelong learning is gonna become a new norm. That we have to begin to look at these questions of generations and say, how do we as a people of God that, that are supposed to exist in a community and have elders that pass on to younger people what it means to, to love God or to seek God in all the different facets of life? How do we begin to have those conversations and find community in that reality? Second thing comes up in the next part of uh, Deuteronomy. We see the intensely practical, Deuteronomy 1, and then Moses kind of fast-forwards. These don't happen necessarily concurrently, but he fast-forwards in, in his telling here in Deuteronomy 1 to when they sent the spies out uh, to the promised land. So they're still in the desert. They move closer to the promised land, and we read, starting in verse 19, as the Lord our God commanded, we set out from Horeb and went toward the hill country, the Amorites, through all that vast and dreadful wilderness that you have seen, and so we reached Kadesh Barnea. Then I said to you, you have reached the hill country of the Amorites, which the Lord our God is giving us. See, the Lord your God has given you this land. Go up and take possession of it as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, told you. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. Then all of you came to me and said, let us send men ahead to spy out the land for us and bring back a report about the route that we are to take and the towns that we will come to. The idea seemed good to me, so I selected 12 of you, one man from each tribe, and so they left and went up into the hill country and came to the valley of Eshkol and explored it. 
taking with them some of the fruit of the land, they brought it down to us and reported, it's good land that the Lord our God is giving us. But you were unwilling to go up. You rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. You grumbled in your tents and you said, the Lord hates us. So he brought us out of Egypt to, de- to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites who will destroy us. Where can we go? And our brothers have made our hearts melt in fear, and they say the people are stronger and taller than we. In other words, in the promised land where they're supposed to go in and take possession, the people are taller and stronger than we are. The cities are large with walls up to the sky, and we even saw the, Am- uh, the An- Anakites there. So the numbers, the strength of the people are even more. So you see something really interesting in this newness of change that the Israelites are having where there's no script, there's no, well, let me see what we did last time we faced this challenge, where where everything is kind of fresh and it's blowing their circuitry. They look at the future and they shrink back in fear. So the practical is spiritual, but what Moses is trying to tell us here is that the impractical the, the thing that was supposed to be hard to do, go into the land and to take on fortified cities and to fight giants and to fight people that numbered greatly, the impractical thing is still spiritual as well. And if learning knowledge, skill, maturity, dialogue, conversation are the part of practicality, what is the language of the impractical? And it's faith, it's trust, it's imagination. It's the ability to look into the future and see it optimistically and to know that God is somehow still at work in the world and that even though I see the the data or the information a certain way that makes me want to go backwards to where it's safe, I still have to walk forward and trust. Um, That phrase, walk forward and trust, is one that I was using a lot when I was writing the book Create Versus Copy, and so I shared it on a podcast And then someone went and tattooed their arm, walked forward and trust, and sent it to me. And so I'm published uh, on paper, and evidently I'm published on, that sounds weird. I should have thought thought that through before I was going to say it. (laughs) Anyways, but um, walk forward and trust. I, I just, I think it's one of those things that's always true. Walk forward and trust. Forgiveness is always true. Humility, it's always true. Love is always true. Walking forward as God calls us forward and trusting um, is always true. Now, how do we really do that? What does that really feel like? Here's the interesting thing about this. So when, when where we're at exceeds the rate of change, skill, practicality, knowledge, education matter, but the, the felt experience of this curve is what, Really, Friedman wants to talk about in his book, and he uses the phrase, uh, he uses the phrase accelerations. When we hit an exponential curve, where the rate is not just going up, but the rate is going up faster and faster with each iteration, an exponential curve, that we only have one human experience that really helps us understand what that is, not in theory, but in experience, and that's acceleration. Everything in life, uh, birth and death, the cycle of kids, the, the, the weeks, the, the season, everything we have is linear change. It's a linear change, not exponential. The, uh, the only thing that's exponential is acceleration. So if you've ever had a sports car, 
Uh, and you would sit at the light and you would think, how do I go from zero to 60 in five seconds? What, what if I can do this? It's manual, shift, you're a teenager. My dad had a Mitsubishi for a couple years. It was his midlife crisis. Um, I wasn't supposed to be driving it, I think, for the, the, the insurance or whatever. But of course, he's a good dad. I drove it a few times. Um, and, uh, and every time I got to a stoplight and someone pulled up with a fast-looking car, I would try to see how fast I could go zero to 60. And it was actually pretty fast. Um, it was a turbo, whatever. And you know that feeling of, of acceleration. You know what happens when you're accelerating? Nothing. You hang on, right? You, it's an exhilarating experience, but nothing happens until you, you take your foot off the gas and slow down and go, whoa, like that was really cool. Or how, how, how fast was that? Five point what? You know, like, or, but what would happen if you kept accelerating from zero to 60 and then all, all of a sudden from 60 to 200 and then from 200 to like 1,000 and, and it never stopped. It just kept going, that acceleration. Um, you would be in a constant state of, of, of tension, of suspense, of anxiety. Think of an airplane. I don't know if you're like me, but when, I, when I'm on an airplane and it's starting to accelerate down the runway, um, the same thought always goes through my head. Are we going to lift off the runway before we, we, we run out of runway? Because you always wonder, like, how far does it, because you can't see, but how far does this runway really go? And how close are they ever cutting it? Like, I'm, I'm always curious. And I like when, we, when I know that both sets of wheels are off, because then I'm like, it doesn't matter anymore. We're, we're off the runway. And then you kind of let the suspense down, and you start playing with what movie are you going to watch, or how many seconds do I need to wait before I recline my chair without creating, like, air rage with the person behind me. You know, there's this weird etiquette, right? Like, of how, how much... How, how long do you have to wait before you can recline your chair? If that moment of, of acceleration on that airplane just kept going and kept growing, and that feeling of, are we going to run out of runway? Is this going to be okay? Is, is this, this thing designed for this? Can, can it keep going like this? If you stayed in that suspense, um, you would do very, very little reflection. You would do very little reflection. Friedman uses language, and, and I think he's right, that, there's, that reflection comes with pause. In other words, you step out, and you look back, or you look at, and you reflect. And as you reflect, you come to some conclusions about what just happened, what is happening, what should happen, and then you kind of re-enter the flow and, and kind of engage. But that somehow the pause is where you think. And frankly, I think hope exists when, when we hope best. It exists in the moment when we're at a pause. End of the day, pause. Sabbath rest, pause. Coming to church, maybe, and getting enough separation from life that we pause, reflect, and we begin to make a connection somehow with what it is we're aspiring to or we believe will happen to us as we move further in life. But, but the charge here is that there's no pause anymore. That your phones are going off during the sermon. 
As soon as you get out of this sermon, it's fantasy football or running straight home to watch football. And as soon as football's over, there's more football. It's called Sunday night football. Um, and, and then it's, it's on the email and then it's on to social media, which social media is a very challenging place to give you any pause to reflect. You're always being in a position of, of having to react or respond without a conscious kind of choice to whatever you see in front of you. You can go from news articles about Syria to news articles about uh, America to uh, advertisements on gun sales to what people are doing with their travels to what someone's eating or drinking that night. And they're so disconnected that the stimuli is, is forcing you to just jump all over the map and you're no longer in a position of reflection. Does that make sense? And so when I was given this, this horrible assignment by Pete to talk on hope, that, that, was my biggest, that was my biggest kind of angst or issue was we don't hope anymore. We don't, we don't, maybe we don't do it as much anymore or we don't do it as well anymore because we don't do pause as well anymore. Most of us feel under the water. When one of us feels under the water, we look around and we look for friends that can help lift us up. When all of us are under the water, we realize we're being tyrannized by a reality that is keeping us from being fully human. And we also begin to realize that there's, there are very few people or no one that can actually help pull us out from being underwater. And pretty soon we reach a point where, like the Israelites in slavery, we begin to cry out to God. And God always hears the cry of the oppressed. And so I think... That's the experience or emotion that we're more acquainted with. I don't have much bad in my life, but if you were to ask me, I would say that in the last year or two years, I'm more acquainted with the cry out to God for relief or for help than I am with the spiritual or, uh, or even practical reflection on what hope is or should mean. Does that make sense? The cry is the visceral side of the category of hope. So we come to Isaiah, it's one of my favorite passages, and we grapple with this truth, Isaiah 64, 4. Since, since ancient times, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. What's going on in the life of the Israelites is they're being carted into slavery, being punished for uh, the society that they allowed to happen, the sins that they allowed to happen, injustices. Um, there's this whole radical change of what it means to be a child of God. As you go into exile, as you try to live a life, excuse me, in exile, and and believe that somehow God has a plan for this. That somehow this hasn't taken God by surprise. That what's going on with your mortgage, or what's going on with your job, or what's going on with your kids, or what's going on with whatever it might be, that this isn't taking God by surprise. He's fully aware of it, and that somehow you can trust, emotionally trust, walk forward and trust that he will reconcile this and bring it back. Since ancient times, no ear has, uh, no eyes seen, no ear has heard anyone other than you who responds to those who wait on him 
who answers the call of those who wait on him. So we find ourselves in this position of crying out, this position of, of desperation or, or kind of um, the anxiety of acceleration. And we cry out to God and somehow we're, we're supposed to do the, the improbable and believe that God will resolve this. Jesus talks about it when he says, um, God knows every hair that's on your head. Look at the, the birds, look at the flowers. And he dresses and he cloaks them. If he can do that, if he can take care of those, he can certainly take care of you. And so the practical is spiritual. The impractical is spiritual. Jesus shows us this as well. Um, the practical is, <laughs> is that Jesus can sleep in a boat in the middle of a storm. It's tiring. It's exhausting to work hard to try and, to try and keep up, to try and do what you need to do. Remember that? Like, we, 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 I, I got the, most of the stories you get as a kid, it's like Jesus performed a miracle and he calmed the storm. And then when you get a little older and you read kind of those stories in the Bible, you see a different facet of it and you look back and go, I think the miracle before the miracle was that he was sleeping in the boat with 12 dudes in the middle of a storm where they thought they were going to drown. You know, you got to be kind of tired for that, right? So the practical is spiritual, it's tiring. Jesus would go all day, fall asleep in a boat, deal with the crowds though, and we see in Luke that he often withdrew to lonely and solitary places. He'd go to a hilltop, not because it was a hill or anything like that, but it's, it's a position to get away. I'm leaving the crowds, I'm even leaving my disciples, I'm going somewhere to be just alone. When I was um, a pastor in California and I was finishing up grad school, uh, I was about a year into being married to Tamara, and I was really trying to reflect on prayer. And the biggest realization I came to was that I somehow needed to be just alone with God. That space to, 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 to feel like there could be a conversation. And so I would crawl up. Um, I only did this for a couple months because um, you're going to think I'm weird. But I, I had a desk, you know, and there's the window and the door, and you can see in, you can see people. And so when I wanted to pray, I would, I would push my chair back, and I would crawl up in the, the foot space in a, in a little fetal position in a ball, and I would pray. And, and it was some of the most comforting times I've ever had because you're just, you're just there, and there's no distraction, and no one's going to walk in on you. And this is what Jesus was doing when he was going up on the mountaintop. One of the best things you can do to learn how to pray is to pray out loud. And praying out loud, using your words, doesn't mean that you're talking and not listening. One of the best ways to listen to God is to talk it out, to, to, to actually verbally pray, God, I don't know what to do in this situation. I mean, this is what happened last time. This is what people are telling me. What would you say? I mean, you know, I felt like this morning this. I mean, is that what I'm supposed to reflect on? You know, it seems hard to reflect on that. Um, when would I ever even do that? You know, but you're kind of like allowing yourself space to pray to God, but you're doing it by using your words. You never go to sleep when you're praying out loud. Your mind never wanders when you're praying out loud to God. You want to work on, on being alone with God, finding space with God? Talk out loud when you pray. But this is what Jesus was doing. Jesus was saying, as fast as life and ministry is going, I'm learning how to and I'm, and I'm planning for. I'm, in, I'm initiating, I'm intentionalizing the pause. A place, a space to go, get away, and reflect back on life.
Um, I don't know what all the answers are for what it means to, to be kind of in this reality. I was saying to someone the other day, I, I think when we started Antioch 10 years ago, I was talking to people who were 60% full, locked up, emotionally locked up. Um, 60% I wasn't talking to, and I had about 40% of, of, of their life, their mind, their attention to try and speak into. Um, and I think now, 10 years later, with this reality that it's kind of like 90-10, that 90% of us, 90% of me, I don't listen to sermons. <laughs> um, I, don't, I don't know where I find the time. People ask me about podcasts. I'm like, I don't, I don't do podcasts. You know? People ask me about books, and I go, I don't even do those anymore. I watch documentaries. You know? like it's where do you find the space and the time to, to take something in to actually be able to reflect on that? And so there, I think, are big questions as we look at society today. I think the politics around the world are showing that we're experiencing this, the emotions of it. Where can we go to just stop all the change? Where can we go to go back and, and undo some of the change and find security, kind of like going back to Egypt and getting out of the desert? But we have this emotion, and I don't know that we know what to do with it. Skill. Wisdom, education, maturity is a big part of it. The other part has to come as we find space to talk to God and are nurtured to be able to walk forward in trust. Last thought is just this. Um, if everyone is, is behind if everyone is playing catch up on what does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be a human? What does it mean to be an American? What does it mean to be a father? What does it mean to be a teacher or a doctor in today's age? When everybody's playing catch up, including ourselves, um, we have to have a deep conversation about grace. We have to have a real deep conversation about grace because we're going to need a lot of it because we're all doing our best, and we're all trying to figure it out. And some of us might get some things right, some of us might get other things. Some of us might take a whole life to adapt to certain things, where others uh, can adapt to that a lot quicker. But we're all gonna need grace, which means we all need to be in a position to be able to give grace um, as we try and navigate this. So my hope is in the Lord. I'm gonna experience that hope as I find space to reflect on it, I'm going to experience, hopefully, the physical ability to navigate life as I listen and, and practically change, that I, that I lean into the God-given ability to adapt um, and, and try to bring wisdom to bear, which is a big part of Scripture, obviously, the wisdom literature. But this is a conversation that we're going to be having for a long time, I think, um, in today's world. So uh, I'm going to go to prayer. Um, this, a lot of this stuff is kind of what prompted me to write a book on creativity. We think of God as the creator, meaning in the book of Genesis, he created. So God is the creator. But the problem is we leave God buried in the beginning of Genesis and forget that if God is the creator, that means he's also a creative. God is a creative being. And creative beings work and move in the present and into the future as well as in the past. We have a creative God that knows everything about us. And so as we walk forward and trust, we can believe that God will help work through our God-given creativity and imagination 
to find ways to adapt to what's going on in society. I have a certain amount of these. They're available to the first people that get them, maybe one per family. I don't get any money from this, no royalties, no nothing. It just felt like this topic, if it's certainly a topic you're reflecting on, that I'd make it available. Or if you know somebody that you want to give it to for Christmas, you can grab that on the way out. So that's my gift um, to you this morning. So Father, we do pray for wisdom. And we pray for love. Uh, love hopes and, uh, and suffers and bears with and perseveres. And I pray for grace for myself, for this church, that as we try and reflect on what it means to live faithfully today and to have even more than that, a prophetic witness to people on what it would mean to live faithfully today, um, that you would help pick us up day by day and continue us on the journey as we get some things wrong, as we, as we do other things that we might be able to do better someday. Let us be a church of encouragement, a community of encouragement to one another. Um, and let us always remember that since ancient times, there's been no one like you who does answer and does respond to the people that cry out to you. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.